Hello, and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. Twenty years ago, there was a lot of hand-wringing among progressives about how the right was winning the war of ideas. Conservative donors had built up a complex of big, well-funded think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, Cato, and AEI that served as powerful incubators and broadcasters of right-wing policy proposals. And for years, it seemed like progressives just could not compete. For whatever reason, foundations and donors on the left weren't willing to invest a lot of money in building major think tanks. That put progressives and Democrats at a disadvantage because think tanks play a really important role in ideological movements, one that a lot of people don't understand. The best of these institutions work on a wide range of issues. They operate at the intersection of scholarly expertise on the one hand and real-world public policy on the other. They develop new ideas and weave them together to tell an overall story about how to move America forward. And they can also engage in political battles in a nimble way, offering intellectual backup to allies in government and social movements and the media. Yet for years, during the 1980s and 1990s, progressives struggled to build powerful think tanks. One major milestone in changing that was the creation of the Center for American Progress in 2005. Today, CAP has a budget of more than $50 million a year. You'll see CAP's people and policy ideas all over the place. Most recently, it's been playing a role in helping shape the agenda of the incoming Biden administration. Neera Tandon is one of the people who helped found CAP, working with John Podesta, and she went on to serve as its president. She's been in the news a lot lately since Biden nominated her to lead the Office of Management and Budget. I talked with Neera before that appointment was announced. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics. And I'm also founder of Inside Philanthropy, which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. Hey, Nira. Hey, David. How are you? Good. How are you? It's so good to see you again. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you. So there's a lot to talk about with the new Biden administration taking office. But before we look forward, I want to take a few moments to look back. You were involved in founding the Center for American Progress over 15 years ago. You've been deeply involved in building CAP ever since, including uh, almost 10 years as president. Uh, It's now one of the biggest think tanks in Washington. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the goals behind the founding of CAP and how How much do you think you've achieved those goals? That's a fantastic question. The first primary goal of the Center for American Progress was to develop the next generation of ideas. So we were founded in 2003. And I'm actually pretty proud of the fact that if you look at our prospectus back in that day. I read it. I read it when it was first circulating around back in 2003. The analysis and the goals, I think, have been relatively spot on. We captured that the ideas infrastructure had really leaned right because of the kinds of institutions that existed and that there was no balance on the center left, that the multi-issue, multi-disciplinary 
organizations were really dominated on the right. So AEI, Heritage, Cato, all were organizations that had policy teams across issue spectrums and heavy funding behind them. And until CAP was founded, there was no organization on the progressive side that had that kind of infrastructure that looked at issues across the spectrum. So it was both to do an analysis, but also to provide ideas about what should public policy look like into the future. And so I think we've been successful in ideas generation, but also a kind of deeper analysis over the last several years we've really tried to analyze power and the connection between power and policy, whether it's attacks on right to work or democracy itself. We are analyzing both, both how political leaders come to power and use the levers of government to promote their policy interests, but also realign politics in a sense. But also ideas that we put forward are have been the building block of proposals that Joe Biden campaigned on. We made those ideas available to everybody. Obviously, they're all on our website. There's a healthy mix of ideas CAP proposed, whether it's developing a a national childcare plan or really detailed plans around how to address the climate crisis that the Biden campaign and hopefully the Biden administration will follow up on, although there are obviously significant challenges with the Senate. So you mentioned being a counterweight to the right. Of course, the Heritage Foundation was flagship, longtime flagship think tank on the right, American Enterprise Institute, Cato Institute. Do you think that the, there's now a level playing field that progressives have built enough think tank infrastructure that they've basically pulled par in terms of that kind of intellectual and policy firepower? So I don't think the the sides are evenly matched in the sense that there's so much more infrastructure on the right. So alongside CAP, there's organizations like Roosevelt and Demos and other organizations like that. All of us together don't equal the amount of financial investment and heritage, AI and Cato. I mean, there still remains a large scale imbalance. Having said that, I like to think that CAP punches above its weight. And so I think that we have the significant ability to move issues on the center left, and we are able to get a hearing for all of our ideas. But as we all know, and you've written about in the past, this is not a new feature of the ideas debate in America. These are decades-long investments made to shift the country right. I think that CAP is an important counter and an important, not just counter, but an important institution to outline positive ideas. But these institutions on the right have existed for a very long time. And there remains a fair amount of neutral institutions that in the last several years have been defined as kind of progressive or liberal and don't really engage in the fight and the battle of ideas. So CAP's budget, last I checked, was like around $50 million a year. Heritage Foundation has a budget of around $100 million a year pointing to that enduring gap. And I wonder, why is it that progressive funders won't make these bigger investments in uh, think tank infrastructure to the degree that funders on the right have? You know, I think that there are a lot of forces that tend to think in the shorter term. So they tend to think electorally or issue-wise. And there's a kind of historical problem or 
maybe historical isn't the right word. There's just a, a kind of almost character problem, which is that a lot of progressive funders, whether they're foundations or individuals, tend to think about making progress in issues. And on the progressive side, the big issue is that CAP has a reproductive rights team, but obviously they're large-scale reproductive rights organizations. So I think something that you've identified in the past is a continual challenge, which is that many liberals, many foundations structure themselves to be issue-focused. So they have programmatic teams that are issue-focused and so don't actually think about how sort of a more ideological response actually makes progress. And this is a big challenge in the debate because, as we all know, people often aren't just motivated by individual issues. They're influenced by a strong ideological response. And I'll just take one issue that is sort of a spectrum, which is, from our perspective, whether people believe government can work effectively or is corrupt is kind of a central element to whether you're willing to believe in anything the government does, right? So whether it's healthcare expansion or tackling climate change, it's a kind of a baseline issue whether people are going to support any kind of collective action through the government. Those are a set of issues we do a lot of work on, but it's hard to raise money for that. It's hard to get individuals or foundations very invested in that kind of building block work that affects issues across the board. And I think that's just, that's a significant challenge for us. And it would be great if people change their orientation. And of course, there's no better place where that's illustrated than in the courts, where the right has invested over the last 30 years in building up the Federalist Society. It's a $30 million a year organization. Every conservative funder kind of tithes to the Federalist Society because they know that's necessary to move their agenda in the long term. Or more importantly, it's important to block a progressive agenda in the long term. And I think there is a difference, which is a lot of conservative funders just think much more ideologically. And a lot of liberal funders just think much more issue-wise. And I actually think one of CAP's strengths is that we are thinking across issues. And a challenge is some of the greatest progress we make on issues is because you're connecting different issues together. So a lot of the work we've done in immigration policy has been about how good immigration policy actually helps our economy. A lot of the work we're doing on climate right now is around the economic arguments of climate and how it makes economic sense to address the climate crisis. And I think that's just harder to get funding on these sets of issues, but hopefully that will change. And I also think the way funding flows from the foundations exacerbates the problem because they give a lot of project support for specific issues and they don't give the kind of general operating support that a lot of uh, conservative funders do. Absolutely. And I think also the programmatic teams get invested in funding at a program level. I mean, it's it's, you know, I, I, with deep respect to all institutions, it, it can operate a little like committees on Capitol Hill, which is people are really focused on their jurisdiction and then issues that, as we've seen all throughout our government, issues that sort of cross committees can get less attention. So one of the ways to get around this problem of project support is you go to wealthy individual donors who give that general operating support. CAP has done quite well in that regard. You've had support from a couple billionaires. You have a very high-powered board of uh, funders and others. 
And of course, that also has been a subject criticism. CAP has been criticized as a proxy of corporate Democrats. David Sirota, for example, wrote last year that the Center for American Progress has been bankrolled by corporations that actively work to undermine and destroy the progressive movement. I mean, I'm sure you've, these are not new arguments. Uh, that, that I hasten to add they are completely false arguments, but yes. <laughs> so how do you respond to those, those kinds of criticisms? So our individual and corporate support are basically all of our corporate support. Absolutely. All of our corporate support is general support. It's not funding particular issues of research. It doesn't um, go to pushing one team to do something. So I reject that out of hand. The reality also is we have lots of support from wealthy individuals. And those individuals are also giving general support to the institution to be the flexible institution that it is. One of the reasons why CAP has the impact that it does is because we have the agility to move resources to issues as they move. Just to take a recent example, whether it's efforts by the Trump administration to undermine the electoral process before the election, there's work we can do in that space because we have general support from large scale individual donors who are giving precisely because of the constant conversation we just had. They see the rightward shift. They're trying to move progressive agenda at large, but they're not giving to this or that issue. And I'm very proud of how we've actually raised resources to be the institution we are to actually push a broadly progressive agenda with very little interference from individual no funder, it's cap policy, that the financial interests of any funder individual, corporate, even foundation should not influence, let alone dictate what our work is. Well, we've certainly covered at Inside Philanthropy a lot of money from progressive billionaires and others going to uh, all sorts of groups on the left. And I do think it's, it's, a, it's a complicated story because you have to wonder, well, how much can these institutions really criticize the capitalist system that is producing the wealth that the donors have made and are, are deploying. I think that's fair. I would say from my experience, though, liberal, wealthy donors, whether they're billionaires, multimillionaires, or less, tend to be more liberal on these issues than the public. I'd say sort of the mainstream of the Democratic Party. CAP has unapologetically called for massive tax increases on the super wealthy for, oh, I don't know, decade, over a decade before I became president. That has been our long-term posture. We supported the large increase in taxes on the wealthy in 2012. We have a robust agenda today about how to get at taxes, how to get at wealth that is untaxed essentially in the system. And I have never had a conversation with a liberal donor to cap that says we're doing too much on tax increases on the wealthy. These people are basically supporting Democrats who all support massive tax increases on the super wealthy. So I I have to say, I I think there's a misunderstanding here, which is that liberal billionaires or super rich liberal people, and again, CAP's ideas on taxing wealth should be realized and that we would have much less inequality in the country. But I think there's a presumption that those donors skew right on issues, and they actually, in many ways, skew left. Yeah. 
well, I've written often that the super wealthy are now as polarized as the rest of the country ideologically in many ways. Uh, on There's issues. still a lot more billionaires that are conservative, so we should just recognize. Yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, yeah, but there's you know there's definitely the bad rich and the good rich, and then there's sort of people in between. You just have to look at the Biden campaign raised record amounts of money for a candidate who has the most progressive tax plan for raising taxes on the rich of any general election candidate, probably since like FDR. Absolutely. And my experience with wealthy people who are involved in politics and policy is that they are worried about the direction of the country and are willing to sacrifice taxes on themselves for that reason. The reorientation of the Democratic Party, this isn't so much about billionaires. In the last election, it it just happened. The Democratic Party has done much better with white college educated voters who tend to be wealthier. And many of them believe their taxes would go up, even if they may not, and voted for Biden because of other reasons, whether it's racial division or social division or that he's a chaos machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the matter with Connecticut? Exactly. I saw that. And we should recognize this is not just an American phenomenon. I mean, what has happened across the world, particularly between the United States and Europe, is that there's been a realignment between the parties across sort of traditional dimensions. In the 1990s, Bill Clinton did much better with white non-college worker, white non-college educated voters and did, you know, very poorly with white college-educated voters. And that has really reversed itself. Joe Biden actually won where Hillary lost because he did a lot better in the suburbs with white college-educated voters, but was able to pull some voters, white non-college voters back really at the margins. This is a deep chasm in the country, but white college-educated voters have become more liberal. But to have a sustainable path forward, I think we have to decrease the polarization across the board. Well, I want to uh, get into the question of progressive coalition in a moment. First, one last point about infrastructure. So looking around, what do you see? There's been a huge growth of progressive infrastructure, big Trump bump. What do you see still missing out there? It's not our place to do what's the best slogan on things. But I think in the period of opposition, and I think this is also true around the world, you have a rise of a, a broad set of voices. So there are a lot of new additions into the progressive infrastructure over the last four years, whether it's groups like Sunrise Movement or Data for Progress or other organizations that are more to the left of CAP. I think that there's a need for thinking through policy and then also messaging around those policies. So I think that there's a broad consensus in the Democratic Party and center left, I should say, around reforming the police. You got there's a police reform bill that the House passed over the summer that lots of moderates voted for that transformed accountability for policing, whether it's addressing qualified immunity or other issues. But I I do think that there's like slogans that pop up like defund police or abolish ICE. And I actually think there's no one actually talking about ending border enforcement or literally defunding the police, but there needs to be a mechanism for, you know, taking public policy. I mean, what I like to say is the right takes unpopular positions that if you actually discuss them would be unpopular and then comes up with a language that makes them popular. And if I talked about this, the death tax is a prototypical example of that. And progressives 
in the last few years have managed to take issues that have popular support, like reforming police departments so that they treat all communities equally and taking like unpopular slogans to address them. And so I think that's a mistake as a matter of actually achieving your policy. And I think the truth is when you're in opposition, there's really no center of gravity. So, you know, I don't find this surprising. And when you have the presidency, the president tends to define the party. So it's easier to push against language that doesn't make sense. I think that there's definitely a need to think through those issues. And I also think social media has created a situation where people tend to live in information bubbles across the ideological spectrum and tend to think that how I perceive of an issue because I live in a city where everyone is very liberal is the way things are. And I think that is a broad level challenge, which is I'm not saying I have to convince a Trump voter to agree with me. I just think it's important to know that the Trump voter thinks in a certain way and that maybe my most progressive policy is not going to convince that person. And we have to live in, you know, we have to think about the world. So progressives are now going to go from a position of being in opposition and the resistance to having real power in the White House and the executive branch. CAP was often described during the Bush years as being a kind of government in waiting. Uh, Same thing was often said about it during the Trump years. In fact, during the Obama years, a lot of CAP people went in there. How's it going to go this time? How much do you see people from CAP going into the Biden administration How much are you working with the Biden team now? Well, I think we have a fantastic staff. So I'm hoping several of them, but not all of them, go into the (laughs) Biden administration. So at a high level, from a broad-scale legislative agenda to a range of executive action, CAPS teams have been developing a positive agenda over several years. I'm particularly proud of the work we've done on coronavirus response, and there's uh, been a a lot of overlap between our proposals and the Biden team. So I don't have a sense of it. I mean, our teams work with, have been working with the transition for a while now on policy. And I imagine a fair number of our folks will go into the, into the Biden administration, but there will also be, you know, there's going to be folks who go in from a range of institutions from Roosevelt and Demos and other institutions as well. Well, you're definitely going to have a lot of friends in high places. One of your board members, Ron Klain, is uh, Biden's chief of staff. Yes, he's our C4 board member, I should say. And now I should say former C4 board member because I assume he just came off. (laughs) Uh, So I wonder how you're going to strike the balance, this sort of insider-outsider role. You're very close to the Biden administration. Some of your people will be there. You've advised it on a lot of ideas. And yet, as an independent progressive think tank, you want to be out there pushing. You want to play that role of advocating for bolder action and bigger thinking and ideas. So how do you straddle those two roles, insider, outsider? I think one thing about our orientation is that, and this was true from the beginning, part of our ability to influence policymakers in government is that many of us have been in government and we understand the levers. So we never really apologize for trying to actually make public policy law. So we recognize the challenges of doing that and we try to think through how you can actually take an idea and go from the idea stage all the way to 
an end product of law or executive action. That is something, again, people can sort of say you're moderating, et cetera, but we're, uh, again, not apologetic about that, right? A good example is how we've been on climate. We really pushed for this idea of a massive investment in climate. And that's a lot easier with a Democratic Senate, just to say, but we don't apologize for walking through the nuts and bolts of how you would actually do that and sector by sector analysis. And then what are the coalitions you can build to create that? And just over the last several years, we've done a ton of work with the labor movement and the essentially sort of equity movement, basically groups that are committed to equity in the environmental sphere to create broad coalitions between those two groups in order to promote legislation. So I, I think that my thinking is that we will push aggressively for positions that make the most, that actually practically answer people's problems, but also do it in a progressive way. But also we times we're just pushing for the legislation or pushing for the ideas that can make that happen. So you'll be willing to criticize the Biden administration when it needs to be criticized? Sure. During the Obama years, there were many times I got calls from people in the White House upset about something we would do. And I would have to say we disagree. And one of the things that we did a lot in the Obama years that I hope we will do in the Biden years is, um, you know, Within the right White House, it's really hard to think long term. And in the policy area of departments, if you're if you're handling your day job well, which is actually managing, it's often hard to think about how to move issues over the long term. And we played a really constructive role in not just Obama's agenda coming in 2009, but his agenda in 2012, 2014. And I think that's a really important function for us as well. So it seems like to me, one big difference between 2009 when the Obama administration came in and today is that there's a much more stronger, independent, progressive movement. When Obama came to power, it was basically an organization, infrastructure he had created. It essentially dissolved when he came into the office. This time around, you have a lot of very effective organizations that are out there that have come up, particularly in the last four years. They have some very strong ideas of what this administration should do, very detailed policy proposals. So I think we're going to see, obviously, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the administration. There already is. How do you see that playing out? And, and, and what are the sort of what's healthy disagreement, what's unhealthy or toxic in, in fighting? And how do you know the difference? Well, I think, you know, I think we're seeing that play out now. This isn't really the think tank discussion, but you're seeing a robust debate in the in the Democratic Party now between moderates and people with the left. And the big question for people in the center left, the broad center all the way to the most left folks is a question that has animated us in the entirety of the Trump opposition, which is commitment to ideas versus thinking through an electoral success strategy. And I think there are voices all throughout the party. And again, this isn't just for me, but I think what happened in the Democratic primary, and I'm just like looking at this as an outside observer, is that people really wanted to win. And people thought winning was more important than 
ideas and not irrationally, because if you don't, Trump is reelected, it was sort of an assault across the board. And I think this is a big question going forward, which is you can't make change in people's lives unless you capture those political institutions. And I think this election was a a big wake-up call in one sense, because my interpretation, although, of course, there are other people who are much smarter than me, is that you had two mobilized forces, really mobilized forces in the country, right? Donald Trump got the highest number of votes any president ever, and except he was beaten by 5 million or more votes by Joe Biden, who literally got the most votes of any presidential candidate ever. So I think that there are a lot of theories over the last couple of years, which in some sense have been proven wrong. One, which is there's a broad coalition that would capture the white working class behind a very left agenda. That didn't materialize anywhere in the election. There were very progressive candidates who campaigned and underperformed Joe Biden. In fact, Joe Biden overperformed the party across the House. Narratives develop or presumptions develop, and then you hit a reality. And at some point, we have to sort of recognize that, you know, and I, I think there's a lot of work to do to understand how the country and how progressives or the broad center left can build a coalition and and what does that take? I think there are really warning signs, right? What we saw in this election is, um, like, take out Miami-Dade, Latinos in the Rio Grande moved dramatically to Donald Trump. I think a lot of work needs to be done on this, but they seem to act more like traditional rural voters than Latino voters four years ago who overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton. And so it might be that we're just seeing a big urban and rural divide, which is a challenge for the Democratic Party writ large, both with the Senate structure and with possible continued gerrymandering. So we have to think about what that means. I think it's also what when I'm going on and on, but I'll just say one more word. It is easier to handle some of these problems when you're handle coalitions when you have the presidency because you can actually have more power to dominate or to to influence the narrative. When you're in the minority or when you're in opposition, that's a lot harder. Right. I think there's also fears that tensions within the progressive coalition could escalate, that keeping it together could become more difficult, and that could really cost us in the 2022 midterms. Yes, that's definitely true. I just think one thing to think about, a key difference between liberals and conservatives is an attachment to governing. I think liberals actually want to govern and are willing to navigate. I don't know that everyone is in the coalition, but I think there is more of a weight to trying to, you know, solve these problems and navigate them so that you can actually govern. And I worked on the Affordable Care Act and we had to make some very hard choices on immigration and abortion to pass that bill. And these were trade-offs that I personally didn't, you know, think were the greatest trade-offs and felt uncomfortable making, but we needed to do that to pass the bill. But at the end of the day, people were, you know, very willing to do that because they wanted to make this change. That's just a big issue, right? Trump had an ability to control his party because he scares them. Democrats don't have that same ability. But on the other hand, I think they are willing, at least a broad consensus is willing to make some of the trade-offs to do that. And also you have to just think about what's the majority in the party or in the broad progressive politics. You mentioned Twitter and it being a part of the problem in, in American politics writ large. It's certainly part of the problem. I actually think, I think Facebook is a much bigger problem in America than Twitter. Although, you know, both challenging.
it seems like Twitter's maybe a bigger problem in the progressive world in that coalition. And I notice you're on Twitter a lot. I don't really partake much myself, but... Uh, That's healthy. I'm, I'm trying to participate less post-election. I mean, I just find it distracting, and it does seem to be a kind of driver of these internecine battles. You know, everything's kind of reduced to this 260 characters or whatever it is now. A big driver of, of creating Blue Tent is that we want to create a, an entity where some of these differences can be hashed out in a more productive way. How do you see trying to get people to listen to each other better, communicate more respectfully, have more productive conversations about some of the very real differences within the progressive coalition, whether it's strategy and how you make change, or whether it's about the role of the state, whether it's about messaging, how do you see navigating some of this and just making these conversations more productive? I think the most useful thing is actually having forums where people can talk privately. Honestly, it's my experience in the last several years of the biggest problem. I mean, there's lots of problems with Twitter, but in terms of navigating coalition politics it's that people will like run to twitter and not have a conversation with each other over the last four years i'm proud of the relationships we've built with some of the organizations that have risen up and just be able to say if you have a question or concern about what we're doing pick up the phone what happens in coalition politics is that people are doing things all the time and when you have a question you pick up the phone and call them and ask them why they're doing it and sometimes there's an easy and understandable explanation. And I think one of the problems, and we're seeing it play out, is just to take what's happened in the House caucus over the last couple of days, which thankfully I'm not any part of. But you have people who have, think of it this way, just very different experiences, right? So Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's district, thats it's you have a certain experience here. And she probably hears from people a lot who are like, why isn't the Democratic Party fighting more for me? You know, why can't they take bolder positions, right? And then you have a Connor Lamb who's running in a swing district. I wrote about this a long time ago, which is you need a broad coalition that can celebrate the success of moving in a liberal position in cities and also have enough flexibility that you understand that there are candidates who have to run in more conservative districts. I think that if people actually talk to each other, they'd understand that some of their presumptions are just really wrong or don't have data behind them. And that's how you actually have to make progress. It might be that some of these positions don't actually help in Pennsylvania. And like, let's have an honest conversation because, you know, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez needs Connor Lamb to be in the majority. So it just seems like if people are kind of talking about it, Instead, there's this, oh, I know how to win in your district, or you know how to win, I know how to win in your district. If a community-based organization came to you you wouldn't say, oh, I know what's better for you because of my experience, which is completely different. And then I don't, you know, so same kind of idea for a different member of Congress with different experiences. I do have hope that, that we can have more productive conversations. I, I would, I think it's, there's an urgent need for those conversations. I think actually having people from across a spectrum come together and actually learn from each other and understand things and really understand where their presumptions are right or wrong or, or at least in contest really important. Listening goes a long way. So Nira, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great. Thank you. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me.